Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to the first Food Focus episode in May. Trent Kling joined by Leighton Kling. We'll talk Outback Steakhouse here in a moment, as well as possible long-term impacts from the soda or sugary drink excise tax in Berkeley, California. But first, we begin with an increasingly successful business in the QSR segment as Arby's Restaurant Group adds to their strong same-store sales showing from 2016. Their earnings release for the latest quarter did come out April 26, and this is for the first quarter of fiscal 2017. They are a privately held company held by Roar Capital Group, an Atlanta-based private equity firm. They bought 81.5% of Arby's in a deal worth around $430 million in 2011 from Wendy's, despite the fact that they are still private they do release earnings wendy's group by the way retains an 18.5 percent share in the company after the deal so there is some connection between the two businesses and a lot of people don't remember Leighton because they've had so much success of late but arby's was struggling greatly up until that point they had image issues they were perceived as a slightly off-brand or dirty qsr selling off the company and enabled the new management to kind of refocus things and with their new ad campaigns surrounding meat and LTOs, it seems as though it's been able to bolster their two-year stack of same-store sales, which right now is around 7%. It is interesting because there was an article about this time last year from Nation's Restaurant News that actually valued the company at $1.4 billion. And so if you compare that to the $430 million in 2011 that that 81.5% stake cost Rourke Capital, you're looking at a company that has grown significantly from its troubled times. And you look at those financials, Trent, and this is an interesting thing because we are able to peek into some of their operations. We see that in the United States, even though a lot of growth has happened internationally, same-store sales increased 1.6%. And this is in a highly competitive space. And so you can see that their marketing campaigns have really helped the company here in the past couple of years. And this is a company we've covered a lot because of those those promotional campaigns and those food innovations that they keep on putting out. But you can see that overall, the 1.6 may be looked at as modest growth. But on a two-year stack basis, we could see that growth in same-store sales or same-restaurant sales has actually grown 7.6%. So they may be decelerating a little bit. But if you look at the longer perspective, we see that 26 straight quarters have been with same-store sales, positive growth, and 12 consecutive quarters of increasing traffic at their individual locations and they have beat out of the QSR industry over the 17 last quarters if you compare overall growth in that industry in the United States and that's according to the NPD group and their studies here recently but overall that may or may not be the case but it really shows that with those increasing traffic levels they may be taking market share from other competitors and so 
We talked about Wendy's having a really strong year. A lot of other QSRs have been struggling. But besides product differentiation, Trent, why might they be succeeding when others are struggling? A Temkin Experience 2017 study indicates a 7% increase in customer satisfaction. So that means that customers that are eating at Arby's are potentially eating there a bit more frequently. And actually, according to the research, too, they're now in the top five in fast food as far as customer service is concerned. And I think this has to do with a couple of features, one being brand awareness. We talk about the increased marketing activity from Arby's. And according to an Arby's press release, they have actually signed a development deal to open more restaurants. 86 new restaurants are planned out for the next year or more. And their CEO, Paul Brown, said that more store development is the company's number one priority. So we talk about brand awareness through marketing, but also through the increased store count. If you see more Arby's on street corners, then obviously that's going to be more customer traffic in the long term or in aggregate. They also have not let off the gas in terms of advertising campaigns. Their social media is strong, just like Wendy's is. It's a little less interactive, but it is consistent brand messaging. And I think through all of these things, they have been able to succeed. And that's why you see consecutive quarters of positive growth. And again, we discuss success with limited time offerings, and you hate to kind of beat a dead horse when it comes to that news story, but that is a major, major aspect of what Arby's does and where they're located in the market now. And I think they've been more successful with their limited time offers or LTOs over the last couple of years than possibly any other QSR. And the fact that Wendy's divested Arby's to Rorick Capital has really helped both. You look at Wendy's share price going up after that point, and then Arby's sales have certainly gone up as of the last couple of years. It's not just us saying that Arby's has a great marketing campaign, great social media campaigns, and great limited time offers. Just a couple of weeks ago, Arby's brand president and chief marketing officer Rob Lynch was named by PR Week the Outstanding Marketer of the Year, and PR Week is the major magazine in public relations. This isn't some small-time magazine promoting Rob Lynch as their Outstanding Marketer of the Year. This is a really substantial honor that Lynch received in March, and the fact that he's been recognized not only in the restaurant industry, not only in the QSR industry, but in the PR and advertising and marketing industry as a whole tells you how well their programs are succeeding at Arby's. You go above and beyond that, about the same time, Arby's CEO Paul Brown was named the restaurant leader of the year by restaurant business. So a lot of people have their eyes on Arby's as an up-and-coming operator, one that is relatively mature, but Leighton, you mentioned over 80 store developments in the works. They eye some expansion. We often talk on this show about white space and where certain restaurateurs can go from where they're at right now. Arby's has built out their store count. They're located in most areas of the United States, and now it's just a matter of honing in where they need to be located or where they need additional locations. But one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the the fact that they've redone a lot of their store interiors. They've spruced them up. They're using brighter colors. They're using red more often than the older antique-looking brown or antique-looking old gold that they would use in a number of locations throughout the Midwest in particular. So the fact that they're sprucing those up, they're making the stores look cleaner, they've really been able to change their image. I think back to 
the mid-90s, and actually The Simpsons had a cartoon reference towards Arby's. One of the characters had said, I'm so hungry I could eat at Arby's. So it was almost a measure of not wanting to eat there because the food was so terrible. Now it's got a much different feel to it much different feel around the restaurant and part of it is because of their LTOs but part of it is because of these new product offerings Arby's introduced their big city lineup of sandwiches or what they're calling their big city lineup of sandwiches they have what they're calling a fire roasted Philly also a New York Reuben and of course the Meat Mountain which is an LTO that we've talked about in the past which is their largest sandwich comprised of most of the meats that are included on their menu they also introduced a special beef dip So product innovation, expansion for Arby's, cleaning up their image, all of these have helped. But one of the things we sometimes talk about, Leighton, is economies of scope. And I think that really applies to Arby's over the last couple of years as well. Absolutely. And they've been able to really relay their message in a way that others have not been able to. And they're using their size to really leverage their marketing campaigns and underline their message that they have culinary innovation and they've implemented different ways of improving their guest experience overall. And you see that through those measures that I had mentioned through the Temkin Experience ratings in 2017. But overall, the company is delivering on the bottom line. You see that in 2015, they were actually able to deliver a dividend to Wendy's, which owns, again, around 18.5% of Arby's shares. But you see that that dividend was around $55 million. So not only are they executing from getting people into their locations and really increasing their revenue quarter after quarter, but they're doing it in a profitable manner. And that's always something that's a good thing for a company, especially when you have outside interest. We continue earnings season with news from Bloomin' Brands as they also released earnings last week, along with an initiative to refranchise a group of Outback locations, something we might be seeing a little bit more of in the future. As with Arby's, this release covers their first quarter fiscal 2017 for the quarter ended March 26th. Bloomin' Brands has four full-service restaurant concepts. The one our listeners may be most aware of is Outback Steakhouse, followed by Carrabba's Italian Grill, Bonefish Grill, and Fleming's Prime Steakhouse and Wine Bar. And in that order is how many locations they have. So you can see there that about 49% of their total store count is with the Outback Steakhouse. And then overall, they have about 250 Carrabba's locations, which makes up around 20% or so, but they have around 1,500 locations overall, and this includes 20 countries internationally, and overall, you see some growth there as well, but our focus here is going to be focused on the U.S. market, or the domestic market, where same-store sales were down for all of their concepts in aggregate, 0.2%, but there were some bright spots as we see positivity in the full-service space with this release in terms of the Outback results. We show an increase there of 1.4% increase, and they improved their gap earnings per share as well, so they're actually being more and more profitable, and this actually indicates the second consecutive quarter that they beat analyst expectations on the profit front. Earnings per share beat last year's numbers substantially substantially as well, both in diluted earnings per share and adjusted earnings per share. They reported 41 cents per share for this quarter versus 29 cents per share last year. And total revenues, however, did decline 1.7% to $1.14 billion. But the majority of that had to actually do with refranchising and the sale of Outback in South Korea. So a lot to digest here, but overall a company with a bit of mixed results here. 
I think on the negative side of these mixed results, countering the same store sales is the fact that their U.S. margins also fell. They were off 0.3%, down to 17.5% due to a number of factors that we've talked about for other FSRs or full-service restaurants recently. One, Outback, just like just about everyone else that has substantial holdings in North America, they're seeing higher wages. They also mentioned more payroll expenses due to a new service model, which requires more staff potentially at any one time to try and increase that throughput measure. Outback is also seeing higher rents, or so they claim. Decreased cash flow from sale and leasebacks as well. And we've warned about this in the past with some restaurant chains. When you unlock short-term value by selling off a property that you own and leasing it back, it's great for the shareholders in the short term. It's great for the company's bottom line in the short term. But in the long term, it can hurt, especially in a climate such as this, where we see retail rents and restaurant rents continuing to rise year over year. In the long run for these companies, you have to question if these real estate sell-offs are worth it because you end up paying inevitably more in the long run. There is a benefit attached to these if you sell off a location that you feel like will only be viable for another 10 to 12 years before moving. But if you plan on staying in that location for a long period of time, it's just going to continue to erode your margins in circumstances like this where you have rents going up. In the first quarter, they actually continued this process of selling off their real estate properties and then leasing them back. So future margins may be reduced and I'm sure we'll see in two or three years the constant mention of the fact that rents are going up as something that's hampering their margins hampering their bottom line in the first quarter they sold 12 locations for 46 million dollars they used the money primarily to pay off debt but also repurchase shares to try and return some value to the shareholders they also discussed general operating inflation this oftentimes includes things like utilities one of the things they didn't mention that we've seen other FSRs mentioned, though, is the fact that inflation has receded. So you've got deflation in the area specifically of beef. And we note that a number of other restaurants and steakhouses in particular have cited this as a way that they've been able to counter the increases in wages and also the increases in things like rents. Outback didn't so much as mention that here, but you know that is positively impacting their margins. So maybe a dangerous sign that their margins are decreasing despite the fact that they saw food deflation in the form of beef during the last couple of years. Now, some of these contracts that restaurants like Outback, like Longhorn, have with food providers go for several years at a time. So they're able to lock in prices. So maybe possible impacts of food inflation, which we're expecting to see towards the end of this year, will not be as severe at Outback. But still, you kind of wonder about their long-term viability in terms of margins if the food deflation over the last couple of quarters didn't really help all that much. And it certainly didn't help to counteract higher wages and higher rents. One of the other negative things, I think, from this earnings call, if you look outside of Outback, Carabas Italian Grill had same-store sales that were down 3.8%. Bonefish Grill, more or less flat, but slightly negative, down 0.8%. And Fleming's Prime Steakhouse, which is their higher-end concept, 
was down 2.9%. When you focus on Caraba's Italian Grill, you certainly do wonder if they're beginning to lose market share to Olive Garden, whose same store sales have increased or same restaurant sales have increased pretty regularly over the last couple of years. We've talked also about the problems that Johnny Carino's has had financially in part because they are losing market share. So I don't want to necessarily claim that Olive Garden is the one big winner out of this earnings release, but it certainly seems like Darden Brands is able to capture more and more market share as they go on. And I think the Cheddar's addition to their portfolio could put in danger some of these other mixed FSR concept companies like Bloomin' Brands who have concepts across the board. One reason Outback survived the dropping same-store sales across other platforms is the fact that they did increase menu prices during the last 12 months. And they saw an increase in ticket. Increase in ticket was up 3.5%. So again, back of the napkin math, this indicates that traffic was down at Outback in the U.S. about 2%. So that's not a positive sign either. Pretty much the positivity from this release came from same-store sales at Outback in the U.S. and also same-store sales for Outbacks in Brazil. They were up 3.6%. They're in 20 countries, but Leighton, I think you and I both found it odd that this was the only country explicitly mentioned outside of the U.S. in this earnings release. Yeah, like I had mentioned at the top, they have presence in about 20 countries, and to only really mention Brazil may indicate some losses in other countries. But overall there, you saw same-store sales increases of about 3.6%, which is actually the greatest increase from any concept that they were talking about during this press release. Overall, though, with the U.S., you see that, as you mentioned, traffic was down in all four concepts. So we had said that same-store sales were actually positive for Outback Steakhouse, but that was 100% to do with the increased ticket there being up 3.5%. We see that overall traffic was down 3.3% if you include all locations in the United States. Average ticket for the U.S. locations was up 3.1%. And this is something I wanted to talk about in that anytime you increase the average menu prices across the board, you may get an increase in average ticket. Your guests are going to be paying a little bit more when they come in and get their normal meal. But I think here, this is going to be potentially a short-term fix, a short-term fix in terms of trying to cover your additional costs. We talked about utilities increasing and then other things such as wages. And those things are probably going to be increasing increasing at least in the next couple of years. A lot of analysts had said wage inflation is to be expected through the end of 2018 or so. So I think right here you're looking at a company that is struggling to get customers into the door and you really may be hurting those very loyal customers that have been coming to these Outback Steakhouse locations for years if you keep on increasing these prices. And so when I say short-term fix, I mean long-term viability for these individual locations. If customers that aren't that frequent at these locations are recognizing the price increases and maybe turning away and going to those other concepts. You had mentioned Olive Garden Trent. That is a prime example of an FSR that has done very well in the recent years. And you talk about Carabas, which is their number one competitor. And their made from scratch concept is really within the concept of Cheddar's, which Darden just procured for around $800 million. And so you really have to wonder if the competition is really taking a bite out of their total market share. And with that, I should lead into the fact that they closed 41 underperforming locations in the first quarter alone and will close another two. They had actually recognized this fact in around February. And so they still have two more locations to close from that announcement. But 
Overall, that's actually going to cost them $15.5 million. So not necessarily a cost savings for the company, but it is a true indicator that there are less people coming in through these doors. Overall, we see that the majority of the locations that they had to shut down were Carabas, followed by Outback and nine Bonefish locations. Both Carabas and Outback closed 14, and there was one Fleming's Prime Steakhouse that had to close, and the rest were a mix of international locations, some being franchise locations. Their net store count was actually down for the quarter. Again, another indicator of a contracting business. The net store count for the quarter ended down 30 locations. So they actually have less than the 1,500 they say they have. And so overall, you see a company that is looking for ways to unlock value since they haven't been doing that well at the store level. They said they're continuing to look at refranchising efforts and sale leaseback agreements. Those sale leaseback agreements are where they actually sell the real estate that they own. Something very similar to what the likes of Darden has done in the past and the likes of Red Lobster as well, where they're trying to unlock value for the short term. They reported on Friday, actually, that they sold 54 company-owned locations to longtime franchisees, and about 45 of those are going to be Outback locations in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and these are going to be sales to already known franchisees that have worked with the company in prior settings. Eight Outback locations are going to be transferred in ownership in Montana, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming to another longtime franchisee partner. So overall, the company has admitted this is going to unlock some value so they can pay off some debt, some short-term debt, and some long-term debt. But you look overall at Blooming Brands as they really have not provided a detailed breakdown of how company-owned locations versus franchisee-owned locations have performed. We were very curious to see if they were actually transferring ownership of these locations and if they had actually been struggling here lately, but we're not able to really compare those sales. Obviously, some FSRs and QSRs have better performance with their franchisee locations than they do their company-owned locations. We see that time and time again as a lot of companies here lately have been announcing refranchising efforts, but it wouldn't surprise us to see more refranchising, at least in the coming quarter or two, as the company still owns a about 83% of their Outback locations and over 95% of their other banners. And that is the exact opposite of a lot of other players in the space have been declaring. They've been saying that they want to have 95% actually turned into franchise locations, the exact opposite of the ownership stake that Bloomin' Brands holds. We can't hold it against them, the fact that they're trying to franchise out more and more of the restaurants in their portfolio. But you're right. I think the first thing we both did after seeing this news release last Friday regarding them selling off some corporate-owned stores to franchisees was to see the mix of corporate versus franchisee sales. Maybe one was performing better than the other, but they don't make it clear on that front. And one might ask why they might be interested in selling off so much real estate to free up cash and re franchising to free up cash so much over the last several years. One of the things that companies will often do when they try to refranchise or sell off to franchisees certain locations is open up capital to expand. We see, obviously, this is not the case here as they're losing net restaurants quarter after quarter. So the main reason here after doing some research is share buybacks. They actually repurchased 4.2 million shares of common stock year to date for a total of $78 million. Of course, you need 
freed up capital in order to do that. And part of the way they're getting it is by selling off real estate. And the other part is by selling off some of these stores to franchisees. That left a total of $52 million yet to be repurchased under the current existing repurchase authorization. But on April 21st, the board of directors did away with that remaining $52 million authorization on a repurchase of stock and authorized a new $250 million buyback of stock, which is absolutely massive compared to the previous authorization. So they need a lot of cash over the next couple of years to make good on that front. The second reason they need some of this freed cash is they declared a dividend recently. In April, it was decided that a quarterly cash dividend of $0.08 per share will be paid on May 19th to all stockholders of record as of the close of business on May 8th. 2017. So this is, of course, an important advancement for Outback as they're beginning to release a dividend. You do this for a number of reasons, but in part for Outback, you can see that they're trying to potentially round up some institutional investors with the lure of that dividend. Doing so would stabilize the stock. It would also reduce the volume of shares being actively traded. Therefore, over time, sometimes increasing the share price. As far as Bloom and Brands is concerned, an example of institutional investing after declaring a dividend lies in the Public Employees Retirement System of Ohio, where they boosted their position in shares of Bloom and Brands by 15.8%. In the second quarter, overall, Bloomin' shares are up 27% over the last three months to $21.65 per share, which is their highest point since August of 2015. We'll be moving on to our final earnings call for this episode of The Food Focus as BJ's Restaurants, a company that we covered twice last year, releases their 2017 first quarter results, which were mixed. The headline here is that revenues grew as a result of new locations, but comps dipped slightly. Company revenues grew 5.9% to $257.8 million. Again, an extension of their store count helped to boost those bottom line numbers. Their same restaurant sales fell 1.3%. However, you and I, Trent, were actually predicting a greater fall for these metrics in that the company really has been putting together a different strategy over the past 12 months or so, as there is a lot of increased competition in this space. The company has been a bit more disciplined with their growth plan and operations here recently. They cited improvements in their supply chain and sourcing, and the company has also said they want to improve their customer experience by being more hands-on, trying to reduce wait times and the like. As results were mixed, we see that they were able to beat on profit. Earnings per share came in at $0.42 per share. Analysts were expecting $0.34 per share. Earnings per share, however, did fall. If you look back to last year's first quarter, they fell about 10.7%. This was the second straight quarter of a positive earnings surprise for the company, sending shares up 7% in after-hours trading on Thursday of last week. Restaurant-level margins were around 17.9%. We just got done talking about Bloom and Brands, where they saw average U.S. restaurant margins coming in around 17.5%. So they have focused on a better guest experience, which in the long run brings customers back. And those repeat customers are actually what makes up the bulk of their revenue. As with any FSR, management sees an increase in top-line sales, helping those margins for the rest of 2017. They're quite bullish if you read the earnings transcript on the third and fourth quarter of this year. Their goal is to actually help the margin out and get up to the 20% 
restaurant level margins that they once had when they were first being popularized a few years ago. This figure indicates that they also include marketing expenses as part of the restaurant level margin, which is something that not all the companies do. They did talk about four sales building initiatives, Trent, and one we will end up discussing a little more in depth later on. Yeah, we'll talk about the first three right now. The first is that they want to roll out server ordering tablets. The idea here is to reduce the amount of time to an order for a customer. And this is something that they talked about in their Investor Day presentation last year, was trying to reduce the amount of time the customer was waiting either without food or without beverage. Because they are a brew house, and in some cases they have a brewery on site in their restaurant, depending on, of course, the state and licensing capabilities, they do want customers to linger perhaps a little bit more than most FSRs do, but at the same time, they don't want customers to linger without product in their hands. So the idea behind this system is to get drinks, get appetizers, and even get their main course out a little bit more quickly by reducing the amount of time a person has to wait when they walk into a BJ's to order their first products. Another initiative, which is being tested on a small scale, is delivery. Delivery will be available for a limited time in some markets, and it utilizes the BJ's mobile app. During the last time we talked about BJ's on the Food Focus podcast, we talked about their need for digital innovation, and they have made their mobile app a little bit better, a little bit easier to use. And with delivery being available in certain markets, this really underscores some of their products like pizza, for example, as takeout has become more and more popular for FSRs. They're taking it to the next level, trying to push it on to delivery. Now, again, the problem with this is we've talked about in the past with companies like Buffalo Wild Wings, companies like Chili's and Applebee's. This tends to write out some of their larger margin items. And in this case, BJ's does a lot with cocktails and beer, can't deliver those. And so as a result, you might see decreased margins for them in the long term if delivery is something they feel like they're wedded to. And this would hurt that 20% margin goal that Layton already discussed. Their third initiative that they had already started rolling out and they began to roll it out the last time we talked about BJ's, was their daily brew house specials. Basically, what that is is a showcase for several of their most popular menu items. They have their signature deep dish pizza on there, their Pazuki dessert, which they claim is world-renowned but is certainly a product that is unique to BJ's, and, of course, their beer and the idea is to make sure that they have a rotating list of specials so as to ensure some repeat customer business and create a habitual customer relationship for certain nights of the week. We've seen this actually done successfully with Buffalo Wild Wings, as I had just mentioned them. They have half-price wing nights and the like. Other restaurants, even on a more local scale, will have nightly specials. This is not a new concept, but when you roll it out to the extent that BJ's has, what this does is create maybe a group of friends that returns every Monday or a group of co-workers that returns every Tuesday for a particular deal because maybe they really like the deep dish pizza or they like the dessert or they're taking advantage of the beer prices one way or another. And we've seen customer traffic not fall quite as precipitously as it had in previous quarters for BJ's. So it might be a sign that they're stemming off the bleeding with these four sales building initiatives. And again, we'll get to the fourth here in a second. Management overall saw sales trends go up in some regions of the country, but negatively affected on the West Coast market 
from the heavy rainfall. Their most concentrated market is in California, and BJ's has a large outdoor seating area. In fact, a lot of their square footage comes from their outdoor seating areas. They really try to hone in on this during nicer times of the year. So the more it's raining, the more you take away from that overall customer experience and the more you force people inside the actual BJ's brew house or the BJ's restaurant in and of itself. Now let's talk about restaurant openings before getting to the fourth customer initiative. BJ's in the first quarter of fiscal 2017 opened three new restaurants up. One was in Noblesville, Indiana, another in Columbia, Maryland, and finally in Mobile, Alabama. To date, in the second quarter, the company has opened two restaurants, one in Indiana and another in Ohio. So overall, that brings their BJ's concept total to 192 locations. Their CEO, Greg Trojan, said that they expect to open two additional restaurants in the second quarter. That would bring their total to four in the second quarter. And then three total restaurants in the second half of this year. So three between the last two quarters. Restaurant growth will slow down a little bit. They want 10 new restaurants total in fiscal 2017. And he said that with some of the success of their newest restaurants, with some of the success that their freshly opened restaurants have had, They feel like they can grow top-line revenue as they continue to tap into some of the white space that they see across the United States. And there is quite a bit of it, Leighton, as this concept we mentioned has under 200 locations. There is room to grow for BJ's. And it seems as though they're becoming a little bit more effective at restaurant level, but they have a ways to go to boost margins to where they want. And they also need to at least increase traffic or same-store sales numbers to be able to be a long-term viability where they're not just relying on opening new locations to bolster top-line revenue. BJ's Brewhouse was a concept that you and I were both very bearish on at the end of last year. And we had actually talked about that on a previous episode and that the management needed to take a step back and slow down because they were talking about higher growth rates when you're talking about in terms of store count across the country and really extending on beyond the states they already operate in. But you see here a very cerebral approach from company management, especially CEO Greg Trojan, is you can see that they actually took a step back here and they're only seeing 4 to 5% unit growth throughout the U.S. now. And I think that's the right thing to do. And in order to really prove out your concept, that's the number one priority here is proving out your concept before you grow too much. And you take a concept in Pi 5, which is totally different, But they were actually proposing 10 to 20% growth rates throughout the United States, but they hadn't yet proven their concept. A lot of people like the concept on paper, but now you see double-digit same-store sales losses because they were not able to execute at a very high level. Now you have contraction with their concept, a lot of store closings that we've been talking about with Pi5. And this is a company that did not want to face the same pressures. It costs a lot of money to shut down locations, especially BJ's Brewhouse, where you see a full-service restaurant, very large square footage, and a lot of expensive lease agreements that you would have to break. And so by focusing on the store operations at the individual locations, you're able to see that same restaurant losses and sales really were not not that bad. We're talking about 1% to 2% on a location basis. Not that bad at all. And Trent, you very wisely mentioned that the West Coast was a bit problematic for them. The rain really was an issue when you're talking about full-service restaurants, not so much QSRs 
in that particular region of the country, but the rain did impact a lot of FSRs, and I think you really saw that with a company in BJ's Brewhouse that had the highest concentration of stores there on the West Coast. So we will be transitioning into their fourth sales growth initiative. We're talking here about slow roasting ovens. And the reason we did this at the end of this story was the fact that this is actually a bigger rollout than it may seem. A lot of people were talking about that the fact that they are going to be rolling out some new food items on their menu, but this is going to be an all-encompassing measure. And we mentioned this because it not only affects the back-end operations for BJ's Brewhouse, but is actually going to be tapping into some additional labor costs. We're talking about the actual training of associates in these locations to be trained on the slow roasting ovens and the menu rollout. Anytime you have to make adjustments in the menu, as company had noted here, it is fairly expensive. And then on top of all that, if you include about a half dozen items, which they will be, to their menu, it comes with a marketing campaign. And so before the marketing campaign has even launched, they announced that back in mid-April, they actually finished building out these slow roasting ovens and this was actually ahead of schedule, so that's a positive for the company. And they said that with those locations that have implemented these slow roasting ovens, they have begun training associates. It is going to accompany some new products. They mentioned during their conference call that they're going to have slow roasted ribs, double bone-in pork chops, pulled pork and turkey sandwiches, all going to be prepared in these slow roasting ovens. So a very interesting brand extension here, Trent, for BJ's Brewhouse. And I think this fits in perfectly with what they're trying to convey to their core customer and that they are going to be focused more on the quality of their food. And this is going to differentiate them between the other full service restaurants that are on the higher end of the spectrum and trying to give something to their customers that those other competitors cannot. One of the things that we've talked about in the past regarding BJ's was their small format restaurants that they were trying out. No mention here as far as opening new restaurants that are small format restaurants. They also have an R&D test restaurant that exists that is somewhere in between the small format and the large format restaurant. But one of the reasons I like the fact that they are slowing down openings, and, and usually I think we're both pretty bullish on companies trying to open new stores, is the fact that oftentimes BJ's experiences a greater level of cost in terms of opening up a new location. And part of that is because so many of their restaurants are brew houses or actual places where they brew beer. For that, you need licenses, which vary by state, and you also need a lot of equipment. In fact, if you just look at starting up a single brewery, you need around a half million dollars in equipment to get started. So it's not just like starting up any other restaurant. It is a very different concept when you're brewing beer on site, and there's a number of costs that comes with that. But I think from their latest investor presentation that they delivered at the recent Bank of America conference, they have a greater idea, I believe, what they want to do going forward, where they want to grow, particularly in the southeastern United States where you see a lot of these restaurants opening up. And I think maybe brighter futures are ahead for BJ's. At least things look better now than they did six months ago. As we wrap things up, this is a story that we wanted to cover last week but didn't have the opportunity. 
There is a slightly longitudinal study that was done and completed in February of last year regarding the Berkeley soda tax. They released preliminary indications on the study in August regarding public health, but they've released some implications that they've found for grocers and convenience stores that we found it interesting and wanted to note on this podcast. Now, as with any study, typically you go and collect your data. They collected data from March 1st, 2015 to February 29th of 2016 and also collected data before January 1st of 2015 to test how the soda excise task or the sugary beverage excise tax in Berkeley, California that was instituted at the beginning of 2015 would impact sales but also would impact public health. We got the public health release first, and we'll talk about that here in a second as we kind of preface our story. First, a quick recap on the tax itself. The tax is not a sales tax, but it is an excise tax on beverage distributors. So the distributors get charged one cent per fluid ounce and the proportionate amount on concentrated syrups. Final volume initial campaign ads read Berkeley versus Big Soda. Approximately 15 to 20 companies have been the payers in the city, and so far the tax, which goes into a general fund, has raised about $2.5 million. So not a ton by any means, especially for a city like Berkeley, but it is being used for nutritional programs and education. So now let's go into the study. This was an academic study, very comprehensive. They surveyed thousands of Berkeley residents as well as other residents in the Bay Area. All of this data was quantitative and anonymous. So they were able to put together a massive year-long study that gives us a very good idea as to some of the data here. And Leighton, it seems as though, first of all, the study on the health front, this is what we knew late last year, found a rise in consumption for beverages without sugar in them. Absolutely. So this is something we had talked about initially when the study came out. We're talking about substitute goods here. And anytime you're trying to take away or tax one particular good, you have to look towards what's going to happen with the substitute goods. And so with any liquid beverage, you're going to be looking at, well, if consumers are drinking less of one thing, they're going to be drinking more of another. And the study found so far that there's a 63% rise in the consumption of bottled or tap water for the city of Berkeley residents versus San Francisco and Oakland residents where they saw a 19% rise during the survey period. Second, a big rumor impact for C-stores and grocers turns out not to be the case, Trent, as it was originally thought that the taxes on the soda would face residents and force them to shop in neighboring cities without the tax. Instead, only 2% of Berkeley residents polled said that the tax had actually led them to shop elsewhere. With that one cent per fluid ounce tax, Trent, that equates to about 15 to 25 cents per bottle of soda. And so I think this is a significant enough amount to make a difference in overall consumption. And I think that's why you're seeing an increase in the consumption of these substitute goods. And then third, a third impact, the tax did what it said it intended to do. And that is Berkeley's low-income neighborhood saw a 21% drop in soda or sugary beverage consumption in the survey period. And so this was really the idea here in that this was a public health issue. This is something that really was implicated to decrease the amount and prevalence of obesity in these low-income regions. And it seems as though so far it has been a success. But we transition to what's more important for this episode in that the effects of the food industry and retail industry have been a bit pronounced. We discussed the increasing share of 
of Coca-Cola and Pepsi's business from water and ready-to-drink teas for some time now. And in all likelihood, Trent, I think this transitioned the beverage companies to accelerate a shift. So overall, you're seeing a transition from a lot of consumers drinking these conventional beverages such as your regular Coca-Colas, your regular Pepsi drinks. But you've been seeing a shift for some time now where they're going to a little bit more healthier drinks. And I think this is going to be an accelerator here as far as the taxation is concerned. And there are positives and negatives for the beverage companies still. Specifically, the positives here we can draw from are the the water and ready-to-drink teas often carry with them larger margins and in some cases higher price points. And so Obviously, if the companies in Coca-Cola and Pepsi and those local distributors are going to be negatively impacted from the overall revenue you had once seen from soda, they can make that up with the profit from the water and other ready-to-drink offerings that are those substitute goods. However, there are negatives. The shift in consumer tastes appear to be happening faster than the beverage companies had reasonably anticipated. And I think that's something that is going to be taking care of itself in the long term as they're able to see the results in this short amount of time. Coca-Cola, in their latest earnings release, it was just dated about a week ago on April 25th, noted that they had a 3% decline in concentrate sales. Those are, for example, syrups that a fountain might use in a C-store or a grocery store. Likewise, perhaps powdered mixes. But they also had a 3% boost in price and mix growth to even out their non-GAAP revenues, basically saying that they are getting a boost somewhat in terms of revenue from other areas and they're being a little bit more exact on the mix that they're able to funnel forward. The reason they use non-GAAP measures, by the way, which we sometimes talk about on the podcast as being not the best measure of how companies are doing, is because they've been franchising out some operations, so their year-over-year gap measures are a little bit deceiving. Their president and CEO, Coca-Cola's that is, James Quincy, said, and I quote, we are rapidly evolving our growth model to make changes that will result in an even more consumer-centric portfolio that meets people's changing tastes and preferences, suggesting here not so much explicitly that they're moving away from the traditional carbonated sugary sodas, But he's implying that you're getting more of a movement towards water, towards the ready-to-drink tea and coffee that we've discussed prior to this point. Unit case volume for them during this last quarter increased 3% for water and sports drinks, 2% for ready-to-drink tea and coffee. At the same time, it was down 1% for their sparkling soft drinks. So we note that while sugary drink taxes may have an impact on soda companies, Coca-Cola and Pepsi both see this coming down the road and they know that they have to shift their portfolio to keep up with consumer desires. And this is something Coca-Cola has been more bullish on over recent investor releases than they have been at any other time during the company's history. Now, as far as the impact on retail stores, which is, I think, something that certainly our listeners find potentially most interesting regarding a soda or sugary drink excise tax, it was initially thought that perhaps retail stores in Berkeley would be impacted negatively by this tax, leading to an influx of customers at other growth 
grocers in other towns and ultimately hurting groceries and sea stores in Berkeley. Now, in Berkeley's case, they are in a much larger Bay Area, so you can go to a grocery store in San Francisco or Oakland or any one of a number of suburbs that are there to avoid the soda tax. It's not as though, say, putting a soda tax in a place like Rapid City, South Dakota, where you don't have a lot of suburban sprawl there. So customers certainly did have other options that required very little travel. Although there's a lot of independent variables here in the data, including microeconomies within towns, especially that of Berkeley's, which tends to be a little bit higher in terms of income makeup, the survey results show that potentially customers aren't going to these other towns. And in fact, for whatever reason, grocery store sales in Berkeley actually decreased less per ticket than they did at other Bay Area grocery stores. Now, all Bay Area stores did see a decline during the survey period, which again, March 1st, 2015, February 29th of 2016, part of this due to food deflation, part of this due to other measures. But Berkeley area stores declined by just 36 cents per transaction. At the same time, Bay Area stores declined by 54 cents per transaction. So Berkeley stores actually 18 cents per transaction better off. Now this suggests, now it doesn't prove by any measure because you have so many independent variables here, but this suggests at least that grocery revenues are unrelated to this sugary drink tax, which was in the first place a main argument against adopting the tax in many areas, was that grocery stores were going to suffer and you were going to see a cut in jobs. That appears not to be the case. And again, this is an independent, academic, peer-reviewed study. So this is not a study that's put out by the city of Berkeley or anything like that. This is an independent, peer-reviewed study. Sales in ounce-per-transaction measure of these tax drinks fell by 9.6% in Berkeley. They did increase by 6% in other Bay Area stores. So you're seeing specifically an increase in the sale of tax drinks at other Bay Area stores. But, as Leighton talked about, substitute goods came into play here. Sales of non-tax drinks increased in Berkeley by 3.5%. Specifically, again, on an ounce-per-transaction basis, water went up 15.6%, and fruit or vegetable drinks as well as tea went up 4.4% on an ounce-per-transaction basis. And overall beverage sales in Berkeley, by the same measure, increased. So, Leighton, all of this suggests, and again, doesn't prove anything, but it suggests that with these sugary drink taxes in place, not only are people buying substitute goods, but they're buying more of the substitute goods. Really, we're seeing an increase in the consumption of water in these regions, and I think that is a good thing. You're talking about, again, a public health issue that was really the whole reason for this initiation for the soda tax. And Christine Madsen, a researcher at the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health, said that this will be a very large implication as far as the public health is concerned, if this is going to be a sustained impact. Here we're talking about a, a fairly simple measure in that soda consumption is going to down, water consumption is going up, overall obesity counts should be going down, and people are going to be healthier overall. Again, we don't know because we don't have the long-term data and won't for several years, but this is a very interesting study, and this is overall a topic we're talking about with neighborhoods across the country. Other soda taxes have been up for proposal. Some have been shot down. Others are up for votes. But I would say that the results of these kinds of studies are extremely important when you're talking about the larger implications and if those other programs and propositions are going to be passed later on. Overall, it seems as though the research up to this point has been positive. 
We quickly want to talk about an additional story here, and we'll be brief, as McDonald's rolls out a new ad campaign where they advertise a new eating utensil, a fork. Now, this will be available only on a limited time basis and in fact only one day coming up here on May 5th but they've got Leighton an entire ad campaign surrounding this utensil that appears to be silicone based. Absolutely. This is very interesting because this is going to be a very limited time offering but they were actually able to produce a sort of an infomercial and it's about a, a minute and a half long. You can go on YouTube and type in introducing the fork, McDonald's latest food innovation. And you can see here that it's basically a fork that's been cut off at the end with three slots to insert French fries. And they said that this is actually going to be used or can be used for picking up any dip that falls out of your sandwich. So I think this is very interesting in that they have promoted it in such a way that's kind of mocking the idea, but it has cost them some money. I'm sure they've spent a lot of money, one, producing the fork, and two, actually being able to hire people to set up the production of this one-time infomercial. So a very interesting marketing campaign and something that you and I had touched on and saying that we really need to relay this to our audience for one final story. And the number on these faux infomercials, if you call that number, they'll actually hook you up with coupons for some of their new and limited time offering sandwiches out of this line. So it's an integrated marketing campaign. You have to respect McDonald's for going into this area. And in a QSR world, we talked about Arby's marketing techniques. You've got Wendy's Twitter feed that's been in the news for about the last six months. This is a unique method from McDonald's, and I'm anxious to see whether it pays off in terms of top-line revenue because it's been a while since they've had an LTO other than the rollouts of All Day Breakfast 1.0 and All Day Breakfast 2.0, which weren't really limited-time offers, impact their top or bottom line. And we wrap up today's show with our segment, What We Ate, where we each describe one item that we tried that's new to the world of food, or at least new to us in the world of food, and we begin with Leighton. I tried a Simply Organic guacamole dip that's a 12 packets. It's about $15, and this was interesting because I've been really big on chips lately, and I had seen some new tortilla chips that I bought from my local Costco, and I was thinking about going and straying away from my normal salsa dips, and so with this, I tried to have my own preparation kit for this guacamole dip. What this is, is this is not a ready-to-eat dip, so it's not already pre-packaged and ready to go in your cooler section. So this dip will actually need to be with other items. For instance, the company recommends you adding two cups of diced or pureed avocados. Chill in the fridge for about 30 minutes and then mix and then dig in. And to be honest with you, this was a very creamy dip, but it didn't have much of a taste to it, despite the other ingredients it said it had that cilantro, organic cilantro, black pepper, citric acid, garlic, and sugar, and red pepper. So overall, it was very tasty, but it wasn't something that I'll probably be trying again. However, I still have 11 more packets to go. <laughs> Sounds like you'll be eating a lot of dip from here on out for the next couple of months. Well, as listeners will probably know, I do a lot of tasting of beers, and most of the beers that I try, while not being new, they are at least new in terms of distribution platforms. And there is one brewery in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that is beginning to distribute their products a little bit further out, and it's Brewery Vivant, which is, like I said, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their brew house, although I have not visited it, looks fantastic. It, it appears to be in an older chapel, and I got 
a mix eight pack of 16 ounce cans. There were four different varieties: their farmhand, farmhouse ale, their Triumph Belgian-inspired IPA, their Tree Bucket, which is their Belgian-inspired double IPA, and then their Big Red Cock. And that's actually what I tried, which is a hoppy Belgian-American red ale. Now this is spelled Big Red C O Q, so it is French. Now, granted, I tried the rest, but I at least wanted to report back on this. This is one of the few darker beers that they actually put out during the summer months and so with this beer they claim it's a belgian american red ale on the can but if you go onto their website they actually advertise it as a red ipa there weren't quite as many hops as one would suggest in an ipa the nose of the beer the scent was very much almost like a wine there were a lot of grape notes in there a lot of black currant notes a lot of sweet fruity notes there that didn't really come through on tasting and actually I found it to be quite a delightful beer. I do think it's a sessionable beer. Lots of toasty notes came out on finish. Again, not overwhelming on the hop front so I found it pleasant. Their entire brewery shtick if you will is that they use strands of European yeast almost all the way throughout so it provides a different flavor that's where you get some of that fruitiness from than a lot of American red beers or other American red IPAs. It is something that I would probably recommend. I think overall the 8-pack was a bit hit and miss on a beer-by-beer basis, but this big red cock offering I would certainly drink again were it distributed in my area. I actually had to go outside my area to try it out. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast for late. And I'm Trent. As always, check us out on Twitter at the Food Focus. Reach out to us. If you see a food news story, by all means, tweet it at us or send us an email at retailpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for Retail Focus. That'll come out later this week. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.